or uh, I'm not sure if we're live streaming on YouTube right now, but I know we're definitely live streaming on Facebook. We want to encourage you to share the stream. Uh, that's a great opportunity. It's, you know, social media, a lot of people have rubs against social media. It's actually one of the best tools ever given to the church if we can use it correctly because we have the opportunity to reach people like never before. So there are people in your circle that need Jesus. So um, share the stream. Uh, so we're doing a series on Virtue Us, and the idea behind this series is that uh, anybody ever have, you know, you read things in the Bible and you're like, wow, I wish that would happen. Anybody here? Anybody with me? Anyone? One? I got one. All right, and everybody's like, nah, not really. I don't really care. With but So the idea is like, you know, there are things within Scripture that are ours by right of inheritance. They are ours that belong to us, but we never really see them, right? And so I'm going to share with you a little bit. I want you to say this. Every believer... Every has an inheritance in Christ. Every believer has a destiny, and every believer has an inheritance. Your inheritance and your destiny are two different things. Every believer, the inheritance among us all is equal. We have, our inheritance is in his name, right? So what does that mean? Just by review. So we all have the name of Jesus. We all give our hearts to Jesus. And so the inheritance that is in Jesus' name is eternal life and salvation, the forgiveness of sins. But the Lord has, a, uh, yeah, woo, that's right, come on. But the Lord has, uh, has compound names, right? So we, anybody ever heard Jehovah Rapha? How about Jehovah Jireh? Anybody heard that one? Right? The Lord is your provider. That's your inheritance. Your inheritance is in his name. Every believer is given a portion. When God gives us his name, he is guaranteeing you that, that he will accomplish what he has stated in his name. When he says his Jehovah Jireh, what he's telling you is you're going to survive. He's going to make sure that you make it. You're going to make it, right? There are levels within this kingdom. There is survival, there is success, there is significance. Every believer is guaranteed survival, okay? Happy day. You're going to make it after all, right? The bills are going to get paid. It's going to happen. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're like, I don't know how I had made it through, but I made it through. Man, I made it through by the skin of my teeth, but I made it through because God guarantees your survival, but your success and your significance are related to different things. Healing, is, healing belongs to the Lord. Uh, victory belongs to you. So every place his name is, okay, let's, say, let's take this one, Jehovah-Rohi. Wisdom belongs to you. This is an easy one. So your provision is in his name. Every Christian has access to the mind of Christ. Every Christian has access to the wisdom of the Lord. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You call on the Lord. You go, I don't know what to do. Lord, show me what to do. Show me what to do. And he shows you. Or he makes a way right? It comes. You didn't do anything. You didn't contort yourself. You didn't have to twirl five times and jump up and down. It comes to you because it's your inheritance. It belongs to you. Victory is your inheritance. Jehovah Nisi, right? He's the banner of victory over your life. It looks like you're going to go down, but you don't go down. You go over, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? It looked like you were going to be defeated, but you didn't. You, you won in the end. It looked like everything was going to happen. God will bring you into victory. He will lead you. That's your inheritance, Destiny relates to different things. Destiny relates to understanding. Destiny relates to positioning. Destiny relates to faith. And destiny relates to action. But inheritance doesn't. Inheritance is activated. So every believer has it. We have an equality of inheritance. But we don't have an equality of destiny. Destiny is given to the Christian and it must be pursued. Dest inheritance is activated, but destiny is pursued. Destiny is pursued. Here it is. So where's is, where is destiny? All things have been given to us by divine power that pertain to life and godliness. So Jesus, in his provision, has made provision for us for everything that pertains to life and everything that pertains to godliness. Everything you need to make it has already been provided for. Everything you need to follow him has already been provided for. 
Ephesians tells us it's in the heavenly places, so we have to access them spiritually. Peter's going to tell us in this verse right here that everything that God has for you is in his promises. Okay? says this, through the knowledge of him who called us to himself by glory and virtue. So God has called us. He's provided and he's called us. He's summoned. It's called ekkaleo. Say it with me. Ekkaleo. means the king has called. That's what it means. It's divine summons. The church is an ecclesia, an ekkaleo. We are summoned unto him for his purpose. We're a corporate ekkaleo. But God has called you to himself with what? Glory and virtue. These things, and through the glory and virtue, God has given us great and precious promises through which we draw from his nature. God's provision and God's power are found through his promises. You understand that? Promises have conditions. In order for the promises to become activated beyond the inheritance, you have to meet the conditions of the promise. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, turn from their selfish and self-seeking egotistical ways and seek my face, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. What's the promise? Anybody? Did God promise to heal our land? What's the condition? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their self-seeking egotistical ways... Seek my face, not my hand. Seek his face. Seek him for who he is, not for what he does. He says, then I'll hear you. Then I'll move my hand. So by seeking his face, he moves his hand. Isn't that crazy? And I'll heal your land. That's a promise with a condition. There's many, many more. Call upon me and I will answer you, show you great and mighty things that you know not of. That's a level beyond wisdom. God's promising you revelation. He's promising you divine insight. He's promising you an ability to see what others cannot, to understand what others cannot. In what arena? I don't know. Pick one. Pick one. Who's the guy that invented peanut butter? Anybody? What's that guy's name? Carver. There it is. Somebody said that. Yeah. This guy was a Christian. Do you know how many, and you ever looked at ben, uh, it's George Washington Carver? You should look this guy up and see how many inventions this guy made. And do you know where he got his inventions? Do you know where he got his revelation? He said, every morning I would walk with the Lord and I would hear what the Lord has to say and God would show me. So how did he come up with, if you ever look at George Washington Carver, this guy is like probably one of the biggest people, one of the most, he has more patents than, I mean, this guy's invented so many things. But if you understand where he got his, his concepts, his revelation, his understanding, is he called upon the Lord. And he asked for revelation and insight into areas and arenas that he did not know of. And the Lord answered him. God promises revelation to his people. But you got to ring the bell. You got to ring. Jeremiah 33, 3, you got to pick up the phone. You got to call. You got to seek him. You want revelation into your life? Ask him. You want revelation into your marriage? Ask him. You want revelation into your future? Ask him. You want revelation into the business climate? I'll give you another revelation. Isaac. The Bible says, Isaac saw the Lord. Everybody say it with me. Isaac saw the Lord, right? That's a revelation. And in that revelation, the Bible says, Isaac sowed in the time of famine and he reaped a hundredfold. Isaac sowed when nobody else was sowing. Now, how did Isaac know when to sow? Because he had a revelation from the Lord. God told him to do something that nobody else was doing in a time when no one else was doing it, in a time when it didn't make sense. But the Lord told him to do it and he did it and he reaped a hundredfold. It's promised to you. But promises require positioning and meeting the conditions. 
right? That's what he promises. So there's plenty of those. So in the ancient world, God produced, we're called to live a life of virtue. So the, the whole idea of this message is creating an ecosystem in our lives that brings forth the kingdom. So the, the, promises and the, the, the promises and the conditions of God come forth in an ecosystem. And what is that ecosystem? That ecosystem is virtue. So we have to create currents and rivers in our life. That's what the word virtue actually means. It means current or river. So we have a current or a river of power or a current and a river of, of these right things going on in our lives. And that river begins to flow into our lives and begins to create an ecosystem around our lives in which the kingdom can come. Honor is one of the, is one of the virtues. If you do not honor, you will not access. Plain and simple. Most Christians, the greatest famine in their life is directly related to their unwillingness to honor. There's famine in your land because you will not honor. And you will not honor the Lord the way that he has told you to. You will not not, not honor the Lord in the ways that he's prescribed. Therefore, there's, there's famine in your land because you refuse to honor. If you honor, creates access. If you will not honor, there will be no access, Christian. Real simple. We're to honor our wives. We're to honor our husbands. We're to honor each other. Honor creates access. If there's no honor in your marriage, there's no access in your marriage. Walk around disrespecting each other, ladies and gentlemen, and see how that works. You emotionally shut down. It's just, or we, we intuitively push away because honor creates access. But when I honor my wife, I get access. I honor her through love. I honor her in the way that she wants to be honored. She wants to be loved, right? She honors me in the way that I want, to be, I want to be honored. I want respect. That's typically what men want. Men want respect. Women want love. That's how it works. But honor creates access. Wisdom, courage. Without courage, you're never going to see the kingdom. I use this story. I'm called to be a prophet to the nations. I'm called to be an evangelist. Not if you don't have the courage to walk across the street, dude. Right? I'm going to speak to the nations. Not if you don't have the courage to talk to somebody about Jesus. Here's a story. There's a guy, we use this story many times, but there's a guy I knew from this other church. He's like, God's called me. Every week, he'd come up, and this was this church, they would call for testimonies and stuff, and so he'd grab the microphone. And like, this happened the first time I went to my friend's church, and then I went another time. It was like three years later, and the same guy was there giving the same testimony. It was the same exact testimony. God has called me to write four books. Four books. God has called me to write four books. Hallelujah. Praise God. Yeah. Second time I heard him, I walked up to him. I was like, you got a chapter? You got a title? Have you written anything, brother? Have you put a word on the page? Right? If you don't have the courage to put pen to paper, you're never writing a book. Courage is, the, courage is part of the ecosystem. The virtue is the ecosystem that enables the kingdom to come forth. Without honor, there is no, the kingdom will not come forth. Without courage, the kingdom will not come forth. Without wisdom, self-control, the kingdom will not come forth. These are the things that we have to have operative in our life. The, the kingdom is a kingdom of courage, people. It's a kingdom of risk. Greater love than no one than this than to what? Lay his life down. That's pretty risky. If you want to follow me, what? What's the first thing he says? Anyone seeks to come after me, what's the first thing? Come on, I know I got believers in the room here. What's the first thing he says? Deny yourself. <gasps> what? What an offense in America today that the Christian actually has to deny themselves. Oh my gosh. We have to deny what we want and impose ourselves upon what he wants. If anyone seeks to come after me, you must deny yourself. 
Take up what is sacrificial to you. Do what you don't want to do. If you cannot do that, you are not what? Starts with a W. Worthy of me. Just let that marinate for a second. If you cannot deny yourself and be sacrificial on my behalf, you are not worthy of me. That is completely contrary to the American gospel. But that's the kingdom gospel, Christian. It's risk. It's courage. We put faith in Jesus. We deny ourselves. Our life is no longer our own. Our life belongs to him, and we follow and do what he says. That takes courage. That takes risk. Today, we're going to talk about another one of the virtues. The virtues what virtues are is the environment of excellence. And so we create an environment of excellence. Honor is excellence, is it not? I honor you this morning. You are here seeking the will of your Father, hungry for truth. And you know what's going to happen? Because you're here and because you honor the Lord and because you're watching, the Lord will give you something. You will access something merely based upon the fact that you're willing to honor him. Honoring him even with your presence, honoring him even with your attention. You will not leave this place without something. He will impart something to you. It's like pizza. Even if it's bad, you're still, it's still pretty good, right? It's all right. It's pretty good. Eh? Remember when we were single, we used to eat like three-day-old pizza. Like, that's three, old, three days old. And we'd be like, it's still pretty good. We still eat it. Single guys, man, we eat whatever, whatever's left over, right? It's another story anyway. So we're going to talk about justice this morning. This is a controversial topic, in, in, particularly in the church, but it's important that we understand it because it's a meta theme within the scripture. Justice, what is it? Would you say it with me? Justice is the right use of power. Mm-hmm. Injustice is the wrong use of power. Where does justice come from? Well, this is a really important thing to understand. It's Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice is the foundation of his throne. Mercy and truth are before him. So you want to know what the atmosphere of the Lord is like, right? Mercy and truth are before him. What's mercy? Spiritual power moving in love. So what is the atmosphere of the Lord? When you come into the presence of the Lord, there's going to be spiritual power moving in love, right? That's what you sense when you're in the presence of God. You're going to sense spiritual power moving in love. And there will be truth. Mercy and spiritual power moving in love with truth are before him. But he rules from righteousness and justice, which means... The Lord alone determines what is right and wrong, which means the Lord alone determines what is just and unjust. We don't, right? We don't. <laughs> Once you say, well, come on, it's a good, just get out of the way. I want everybody to say, ouch. All right, so now we got the collective pain out of the way, and let's just say this. We do not have the right to determine right and wrong. We do not have the right to determine justice or injustice. Right and wrong comes from the Lord's perspective alone. Justice and injustice comes from the Lord's perspective alone. We don't get to vote on that. He sits upon it. You get it? He rules. I rule righteousness. I rule justice. What I say is wrong is wrong. What I say is just is just. What I say is unjust is unjust. doesn't matter if your opinion coincides with that. And so that's the idea. So if we're going to understand this as Christians, we need to move within the rhythms of what our Father wants. This is really what we are, right? We're calling you to the heart of your Father. We're calling you to what your Father wants. We're revealing to you what your Father wants. That's what it means to sons and daughters is we are about our Father's business. We understand our Father's heart. We understand what our Fathers want, and we coincide with that, right? 
Justice is the right use of power. Having the power and the ability to affect meaningful change and using it to that end. Do you have the power to do something meaningful in your life, in the life of another, or in the world around you? You are expected to use it. You're expected to do it, right? Bible says this, James 4, 17. Therefore, to the one who knows what they're supposed to do and they don't do it, it's sin. Now, it's not sin in the sense that you're condemned. It's sin in the sense that you're missing it. There's something in front of you that you have the power to affect change or the power to do something good, whether it's your life, the kingdom's life, the life of the kingdom or in the life of another, and you don't do it, you're missing it. Well, what am I missing? You're missing an opportunity. You're missing an opportunity for God to do something with your life. You're missing an opportunity for God to do something through your life. And you're missing the opportunity of what God wants to do in the life of the person that you're taught talking to. You understand that? That's what it tells us. That's what justice is. We have power, right? So we'll get into this in a second. So what, is, what are we supposed to do individually and corporately? It's, we have to frame this stuff, right? We're about to say this one. The context matters, right? We have to understand what, we're, what the frame is that we're working with. We're to honor and glorify Jesus in everything. That is your first and primary job. Say it with me. Honor, honor. Glorify, glorify Jesus in everything. Excuse me for a moment while I honor and glorify Jesus in everything. That is the role of every single believer, and that is the role, role, role of the church corporately. And you say, what does that look like? Isn't that the question? That's what we're actively pursuing. What does it look like to honor you, Lord? What does it look like to glorify you, Lord? Show me that I might do it. Show us that we might do it. You get it? And we're to create flourishing on earth as it is in heaven. That's the second role. So the church is first, the, the, the role of the believer is first to glorify and honor the Lord in everything. That in all things, he has the preeminence. He is first and foremost in everything. There's no debate. <laughs> There's no debate with me. Jesus, yes. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, man, we're going to talk about Jesus. We won't be here for a while, because I can talk about Jesus all day. All day. Right? Football, yeah, I got a little bit of that in me. Sports, yeah. I got a few things that I can talk about every now and then. Business, maybe. Yeah, I can probably go long on business. I'm pretty good in that area. But Jesus, forget it. Game is on. We're supposed to create flourishing. We're supposed to create well-being and the benefit of heaven upon the earth. And again, what does that look like? Isn't that the question? That again is the relational question that we're supposed to engage in. Well, let's just give a few. So we're supposed to create flourishing, right? On earth as it is in heaven. What is the will of the Lord? On earth as it is in heaven. The will of the Lord is whatever is in heaven is his will upon the earth. Okay? Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done. The dominion that is in heaven be done upon the earth as it is in heaven. The will that of the Father that is done in heaven be done upon the earth as it is in heaven. You want to know the will of the Lord? On earth as it is in heaven. Salvation creates flourishing. So we're supposed to create the flourishing of the kingdom. What does it look like? Well, let's just take some basics. We bring people to Christ. All of a sudden, people's lives are flourishing. I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. I don't know what's different, but something's different. You understand what I'm saying? Born again experience. It's not conversion of the mind. It's conversion of the heart and everything changes. And your life begins to flourish. So salvation creates flourishing. Healing creates flourishing. The prophetic creates flourishing. Meaningful relationships with brothers and sisters create flourishing. There should be meaningful relationships one to the other. 
Christian relationships are so oftentimes hypocritical and stupid and judgmental when they should be completely the opposite, meaningful. You know, if anybody's going to stand with you, it should be your brothers and sisters. If anybody's going to be there and help you out, it should be your brothers and sisters. They will know that you belong to me by what? The way you love one another. Charmaine, you are on a roll. So they will know you are my disciples by the way you agape, the way you willingly serve, the way you willingly commit, the way you willingly support each other. Right? And that requires a lot of, let's just say, vulnerability. Right? That requires a lot of different things. It requires a lot of uh, no judgmental, no judgment, no judgment, no judgment zone here at Elevate. No judgment zone. I used to go to churches, I'd sit in elders' meetings, and they'd be like, well, do you know what's going on in the body? And I'd be like, you know, this person, this, this person. I'm like, man, like, this is what we're talking about? People sin? Listen, people sin, right? We're, sin. We're, we're, we're sons and daughters. We fight the duality of our nature. The old man wants to go back, right? It's the zombie. Uh, uh, you know, the zombie wants to walk around and do the old things, right? Let's call people to the new man. Let's stop focusing on what is wrong and let's start focusing on what is right. Let's stop condemning what they're doing that is wrong and let's start calling them to what is right. Let's guess. Thank you. (laughs) Wisdom creates flourishing. Truth creates flourishing. Restoration creates flourishing. When people's lives are restored, things change. This is what the church is supposed to do. All right, this is what we're supposed to do in each other's lives. We should, be, we should be eager. There's a word that in Scripture it uses. It's called koinonia. And it means it, what it, that word is only used for the fellowship of believers. Did you know that? Koinonia. And it means bonded fellowship. It means a unity that exists between brothers and sisters. It's almost an unbreakable bond. There should be unbreakable bonds between us. We should not be so easily offended. Good God, help us. Can we stop being so easily offended? We break fellowship over the stupidest things. Right? So dumb. We don't split the team over the minors, Christian. Somebody offended you. Yeah, you know what? Well, you're going to offend somebody else. So guess what? Welcome to the planet. Somebody hurt me. Yeah? Well, it's highly likely that you hurt somebody too. So let's look at our hearts. Let's apologize for the offenses. And let's all move on. Can we do that? Right? And not break fellowship. Can we actually do what the Lord asks us to do? Can we have koinonia? Can we have a bonded fellowship, an unbreakable bond that we refuse to be offended by one another? That we refuse, and if we are offended, we're going to be mature, and we're going to deal with our offenses. We're going to apologize when we're wrong. Can we do that? Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry I offended you. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Let me just let me get mine out of the way for the year. I will offend you this year, rest assured, so let me just get my apology out of the way. I'm sorry that I offend you in some way. But the corporate church is to foster and develop the people into a relationship of Christ. This is what flourishing looks like. So the corporate calling, the justice that the church performs, first and foremost... First and foremost, the church's justice, the right use of the church's power, first and foremost, is to foster and develop the people in a climate that brings the relate, they're deeper into the relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That is the first and primary thing. And then it's to teach and advocate the principles and the truths of Scripture. And it's to call the believer higher, right? It's the purpose of the church, to call the believer higher. We're supposed to go higher. We're not supposed to stay the same. Right? Read through scripture all the time. There's a lot of corrections for the Christian who refuses to, who refuses to change. You should be teachers by now. 
but you still exist by being taught. Right? You should be on meat, but you're still sucking on the bottle. That seems like Christians who don't want to rise to me, doesn't it? Right? We serve steak and eggs here, so you know, get your knife and fork ready. It's coming at you. <laughs> we're supposed to call the believer higher, and we're supposed to foster, call the lost out of darkness. So call the Christian higher, call the lost out of darkness, foster re- meaningful relationships among the believer. It's what we're, we have groups for everything. We have a men's group, we have a women's group, we have affinity groups, we have life groups. And if we don't have a group that suits you, well, then start a group right? <laughs> Get a group. <laughs> Make your group. <laughs> well, you're supposed to be in a meaningful relationship. You're like, I don't know. You know, I feel vulnerable in the group. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You will change when you do what Jesus asks. So long as you refuse to do what he asks, he commands us into meaningful fellowship. He does. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, which is the what? The manner of some. A lot of Christians say they're mature, but they don't feel like they have to connect to church. Well, who told you that? The manner of some. In other words, the mature understand that they're to have a meaningful connection to the church. Right? They're to be there. They're to be a functioning part of the local assembly. And then they're also to understand that they're supposed to be with one another. Romans 1.11. I long to be with you so that I might impart something spiritual. That me and I might exchange something spiritual and meaningful with one another. We're supposed to have meaningful relationships with each other. People hurt me. I know. I know. I hurt myself. Welcome to my world, right? But you have to force yourself into those situations sometimes. You have to push yourself into those situations sometimes. And you say, well, why do I have to do that? Because it's what the Lord wants. You're going to be a hermit, unchanged, unchallenged. Where there's no challenge, there is no change. Relationships challenge you. They show you all your deficiencies, all your dysfunctions. Anybody that's married understands this, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> that relationship shows you all your deficiencies and all your dysfunctions up close. You're like, I thought I, was, I, thought I had it together until I got married. And then I'm like, what in the world? I'm messed up. I need Jesus. <laughs> We're supposed to develop programs and platforms that create flourishing in and through the church with kingdom influence. So everything we're supposed to do. So the church is supposed to do these things internally. And then we're supposed to do it this way. And then we're supposed to do it that way. We're supposed to create it internally, and we're supposed to push it outward. Internal relationships. We're supposed to, this is what, you have the ability to help each other. You have the ability to encourage each other. You have the ability to exhort one another. There should never be a situation where there is a discouraged believer. If there is a discouraged believer, one of two things is happening. You're not letting anybody know that you're discouraged. You know, here's how it works. I'm discouraged. You got a word for me, man? Speak life over me. We have a prayer team that stands over here every Sunday morning. I guarantee you, this, this group's trained that way. If you go over there and you go, man, I'm really discouraged. I just need a word from the Lord. You are a son of the highest. God has called you on purpose with a purpose. Everything in your situation is going to turn around. You will get exhortation today. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. There should never be any situation or circumstance where there is a discouraged believer. If there's a discouraged believer, it is the failure of the person that's discouraged to make it known. And if the person makes it known and the church can't come around that, then the church is not doing its job. We are to exhort one another. We are to pray for one another. That's what we're supposed to do. We should never have discouragement. Shouldn't exist. Shouldn't exist. Discouraged? Come on down. Let's go. Let's pump it up. Let's go. We're going to get you pumped like Arnold. Properly pump you up. Right? (laughs) You should walk out of here, oh, yeah, I feel good. 
I'm pumped. We have to help each other in practical ways. That's our first and foremost responsibility of justice. And using our abilities, our, the power that we have, is towards each other. Every opportunity you have, do good, the Bible says, Galatians 6, 6.10. But especially, everybody say especially, especially, to the household of faith. Especially to each other. We're to be a network of believers. We're to have that network with inside of us that there's encouragement and all of these things. So we're going to talk about just real quick a few facets of justice. What does justice look like? It looks like that. And if we were to isolate it into a couple of categories, what, looks, what, what would we term justice? Well, number one, it would be generosity. That's what I'm talking about, being generous with one another. It's not just your money. It's your time, right? It's, it's, it's your abilities, right? Some of you, you have the ability to fix cars. There are people here with broken cars. Hmm? They can't afford to get their car fixed. What if you said, hey, man, I, I can fix cars. I'm willing to do a couple hours on a Saturday. I'll at least take a, take a look at it. You know, generous. You see what I'm saying? Generosity. Being generous with what you have. You have an ability to help. We got a guy here as a lawyer, uh, Eric Perez. And I, we had, he came up and he wanted to do a presentation. We're all thinking, what are you guys promoting this lawyer? No, because he was offering pro bono services to this church. Yes. Yes. Pro bono. His card's over there if you need it. Pro bono. He's offering free services to this church. What does that mean? I, this, I didn't even teach him on generosity. Right? We weren't even taught on generosity, but that's generous. It's not just generous necessarily with your money. Yeah, that's part of it. But it's generous with your time, generous with your abilities, generous with your encouragement. Capitalism says it's all mine. Socialism says it belongs to the government. But the kingdom says it all belongs to Jesus. Did you know that? It's not yours. It's not the government's. It belongs to the Lord. That's right. Amen. Haggai says, the silver and gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Paul corrects the church in Corinth. He says, why are you guys bragging? Oh, y'all bragging, right? Christians gone wild. Book of Corinthians. They were doing it. They, were, they had spiritual power. I love this book. I love if you kind of understand it. They had everything go, spiritually. They were like going off the charts. Like they were on a metered 10. But like dynamically, they had everything wrong, right? There's a lot of immorality going on. Everybody's boasting, yeah, yeah, look at my new AMG, Mercedes, you know. And everybody's boasting and flexing to each other, pushing each other out of line in the buffet line. Get out of the way. That's what Paul says. Listen, if you stop pushing people out of line in the buffet line. Don't you have a house? Eat before you come to the buffet, man. You know, they're all like, hey, get out of the way here. Oh, you new here? Yeah, get out of here. I've been here for three years. Get behind me, man. They were doing everything wrong. <laughs> everything wrong. But they had the spirit right. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, why are you boasting? What are you bragging for? Look, Jesus doesn't have a problem with money. He doesn't have a problem with wealth. He doesn't have a problem with any of this. Right? But he's saying, why are you boasting? What did you have that you didn't give? What was given to you? What do you have that you don't receive? Every single thing in our life is given to us. The breath that we take belongs to the, the air, belongs to Jesus. Doesn't belong in carbon credits, Al Gore, you know? Belongs to Jesus. The beating of your heart belongs to Jesus. Everything that we have belongs to the Lord. What do we have that He hasn't given us? Right? There's no boasting, the humility and honor, respect. The Bible never calls for the abolishment of wealth. What? Doesn't. The Bible never actually calls for the decimation of class system. Doesn't. So let me just let that marinate, because I know it's going to offend somebody, but that's good. It's all right. 
where there's no challenge, there is no change. The Bible calls us and commands us to use what we have been given. If you've been given status and position, the Lord doesn't tell you to surrender it. doesn't tell you we have equality. We're not communists. Never says that. It's not everybody equal. That's not in the scripture. Old or new doesn't exist. The abolishment of wealth. There's not, equal, there's not equality of wealth in the scripture, nor does the Bible call for it. It calls for those who have means to use them to, to furnish the kingdom, number one, and number two, to create that flourishing that I'm talking about. It calls those that have position to use that position to flourish the kingdom and to help others. There is no abolition of wealth in the Bible, Christian, and there is no abolition of position in the Bible. It actually calls you to stewardship. Everything that you have, you're supposed to produce with it. doesn't matter what you have. We're all stewards. To whom much is given, what? Much is required. If you've been given a lot, then you're expected to do more with what you've been given. No big deal. If you've been given a little, we're well, expected to do something with what you've been given. We're all stewards, right? Jesus was not a communist. Jesus wasn't a socialist. Jesus is a, is a spiritual revolutionary. It's important we understand this. We put this in context. We understand it. It's not the, the, the quest for wealth. God doesn't prohibit that either, right? He doesn't prohibit capitalistic in, interests. Peter said, what's going to be given to me? I've given it all to you. Jesus said, I'm glad you asked. He said, you'll be rewarded in this life and in the one to come. Read it. Jesus didn't say, you capitalist. How dare you think in terms of gaining something beyond another? How dare you? You're all equal. Equal in value and worth. This is true. Peter said, we've given everything. What do we get? Jesus said, everything is going to be paid to you. I'm going to say this with me. The Lord will be a debtor to no man. The Lord will never be your debtor. Whatever you give, he's going to double. That's what he told Peter. He said, you think you've given me anything? I'm going to pay you in this life and the word to come. You'll get, you'll get minimum double. Minimum. He will never owe you anything. Ever. Nobody does business with Jesus and breaks even. Let's say that. Nobody does business with Jesus and breaks even. Nobody. You get it? You're not doing him a favor. By helping him or giving to him or whatever it may be, you, 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 you give to him, he's going to give it back. He's not going to be a debtor to no man. And, nobody, and he's not going to, you're not going to do business with this, Lord, with this king and break even. It just won't happen. So it says that the Bible never calls for these things. It commands us to use what we have for the purposes of his kingdom. And it causes us, calls us to use what we have for the purposes of, of his will upon the earth. That's what stewardship is. The multiplication of our resources should read the parable of the stewards. It's a very sobering parable. <laughs> the one who hid it in the ground. Not a good story. He hid it because he was afraid. The Lord said, you should have at least given it to the stewards. You should have at least entrusted it to my house. Because then I would have had some interest off the corporate work. You know? But because you wouldn't even entrust it into the corporate work, not good. You hid it. He said, I was afraid to lose. Jesus, is, you know, Jesus doesn't care if you lose. Do you know that? Because in him, even if you lose, you win. Lord, I gave it all. I went for it, Jesus. I put it all on the line. And I went after Uganda. You know, I put it all on the line. And I went after my local neighborhood. And I failed totally. You know what he's going to do? High five. Little faith. Good job. Let's go again. That's Jesus. He doesn't correct you for your failures. He instructs you through them and calls you to go again. This is who he is. And say, you loser, you pathetic failure. 
You know, get away from me. Give me some people who know how to win around here. <laughs> We're all losers, and we get a crown, right? Jesus, what he does is he tells you, like, what have you learned, Kevin? Okay, we lost. Good story, right? Get it. You gave it your best. What did we learn here? Did we learn anything? Can you tell me what we learned so that we can move past this and go to something else? It's the most important thing. God isn't going to condemn you for your failures. He wants you to learn through them. And in learning through them, once you've learned through them, what you're going to do is you're going to learn to not repeat that stupid thing again. Right? <laughs> it's true. You're going to learn. I, don't, I shouldn't put my hand on that stove again because that didn't go so well the first time. But God calls you to not, he doesn't condemn you in your failures. He instructs you through your failures and always calls you higher. Did he condemn Peter? Read it. Peter failed. Peter's the poster child of failure in the scripture. Peter failed publicly, denying Jesus for the world to know. Now until the end of time, Peter will be known as the one who denied Jesus publicly. Even though they all denied Jesus because they ran away, but Peter did it publicly. When the Lord came to him, did he, did, he, did he condemn him? No. He told him to go again, did he not? Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Go again, Peter. What have we learned? What have we learned? What have we learned? The basis of his love. It's the, the, actually, the lesson is in the language. He says, do you love me, Peter? Agape. And Peter's response is, I phileo you. And Jesus didn't ask him that. He said, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with everything that you have and you are willingly self-sacrificing towards me? That was what he asked him. And Peter said, I love you like a friend. You're my friend, Jesus. That's why he repeats it, because Peter wasn't getting it. He says, the basis of my relationship with you is wrong. You see me in a friend way. That's not it. You're my, you're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my, or your daughter. And he said, your love for me must be unconditional. When it's unconditional and it's without reservation, just like Gideon last week, right? He put nothing upon, he put no conditions upon the offering. No condition. He offered it unconditionally and the Lord struck it with fire. Now, could it be? Wrong perceptions, wrong perspective, wrong basis of relationship. It's everything. That's what the kingdom is, is it's everything. You come to Jesus with me, man. I mean, I used to be the guy that we'd be out there, we'd be witnessing on the street People would come be born again and be like, hey, this guy wants to receive Jesus. I'd, Kevin would come up. Okay, so you want to receive Jesus? I said, do you know you're giving your life away? Do you know this is a point of surrender? I mean, I would be like, boom, boom. Like, we don't need any confessors here, man. We need surrender, bro. You know, all in. That's what Jesus demands of us. Everything. 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 Everything, everything. But you know what? You get all of him. You mean, I give my broken down, shot out life, my broken down, shot out perspectives, all of the emptiness and the vainness that I carry, and I give it to him, and, all, and everything that I have, sin and all, and I give it to him, and I get all of him? That's exactly right. You get all of him. And you know what you got? You got a Mercedes, man. You got a Ferrari. Some of you need to learn to drive the Ferrari that's called Jesus. You've not cultivated that relationship to a deep enough level. He is, you have him. He belongs to you. He is your Adonai. He is your Lord, your benefactor. He watches over you to bless you. He watches over you to care for you. He watches over you. That's who he is. And you know what happens when you begin to develop the relationship and you begin to know him and you begin to, in him we live, move, and have our being, things begin to change. When the context of our relationship shifts from friend over there to agapeo, in me, through me, with me, all of me, things change. 
Righteous use their advantages to advance the kingdom and the value of others, how God sees it, right? The wicked use their advantages to the expense of the kingdom and to diminish others. So the way that we use justice correctly is that we're in positions of power. We're supposed to use that power to lift people up. Where do you get that from? Well, that's the model of the kingdom. Jesus said, I'm among you as one who serves. The son of man, okay, get this, the king of glory came down to serve you and me. In what way? In every way. Ultimately giving his life away so that we can actually become, come to him. Jesus, when he washed feet, anybody know that story? He said, the Gentiles seek to lord, when they have power, they lord it over each other. They step on each other. They keep each other down. They press each other into the ground. They use each other for stepping stones to get to their selfish ambitions. This shall not be so among you. The greatest shall be the least. The greatest shall be the servant. What does that mean? It means those with power to use that power to lift others up. Those with opportunity or to use those opportunities to provide them for other people. That's the right use of power. It's not suppression. It's advancement. Right? We're all supposed to flourish. We're all supposed to you know, go higher. It's what we're supposed to do. There's no competition. If we're competing, we're competing for the blessing. Be like, what? Carmen got that? No, that's, you know. I get excited because what God does for her, he'll do for me. And then I start saying, okay, what's my avenue, Lord? What's my direction, Lord? What's my way? How did that happen, Carmen? What happened? Well, I started believing God, and the Lord told me to do this, and I started doing this, and I started doing that, and then God did this, and then God did that, and boom, here I am. That's no, that's no offense to me. We celebrate the success of each other, generous towards each other with kindness, hospitality, opportunity, advancement, and encouragement. Another facet of justice is advocacy. This is where it gets dicey. <laughs> I'm going to be really clear. Advocacy, it means to advocate, to speak forth, to speak for. The number one area the church is supposed to advocate for is spiritual reform, Christian. Jesus never advocated for social reform. It's not that social reform isn't important, but social reform can never precede spiritual reformation. You understand that? If you want to look at the history of this country, every spiritual reformation, that every social reformation that took place in this nation took place on the backside of a spiritual revival. America itself was born out of the first great awakening. The second great awakening awakened the nation out of that awakening to equality. The equality of, of, of at that time, slaves and the equality of women. Out of that awakening came a war, right, that fought for the independence and the breaking of slavery. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't perfect. It still isn't perfect. But it came out of an awakening. That didn't come out of somebody's social conscience. It came out of a kingdom consciousness that was invoked into the lives of the people. It was, the, the suffrage movement was founded by Christians. The abolitionist movement was Christians. You're not going to hear that narrative anywhere. This, the, this nation was founded out of believers that were coming out of the awakening. You guys should do your research on that. Revival. Almost every one of them were believers. They would, Continental Congress would meet. They would bring a pastor, and if the pastor couldn't speak for two hours, they didn't ask him back. Isn't that crazy? Here, we're looking at our watch. You've been gone for 40 minutes, pastor. When are you going to be done? Them, they're like, we're here, bro. I mean, you can't teach us for two hours? That's who they were. Our nation was born out of that. Suffrage came out of a revival. The third awakening, that led to women's rights. That led to equality. That's what it led to. 1919, women got the right to vote, I believe. I think that was the year, somewhere in there. That came out of the Third Great Awakening. We have the Azusa Street Revival. Charismatic, the first charismatic movement happened in the 30s. 
brought tremendous change. Literally was bringing the earth, the the, the nation came out of poverty during that period of time because people actually began to believe God by faith. The charismatic movement emerged out of that. Spirit-filled believers came alive out of that and began to believe God, and it shifted almost the entire economy of the nation. That social change didn't come up out without revival. The church is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are the city on a hill. Social reform without the kingdom is vain and empty and will always lead to an implosion of the culture. It will never build the culture. It will always implode it. The 60s, Jesus movement. On the tail of the 60s came the civil rights movement. Believers, read it. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, wrong answer. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. They were Christians. Coming out of what? There was a Jesus movement. There was a social movement that was happening from coast to coast, and civil rights came out of that. You don't hear that on CNN. You don't hear that anywhere, but this is, these are facts. So while we focus on social reform and the church has gone all in on this social reform, we're failing at spiritual reform and we're failing in the, in, in to understand what the equation looks like. It begins with spiritual reformation and that leads to social reformation. 70s, 80s, 90s, you can track it all the way through, all of the changes that happen through culture. You know what the problem is? I'm gonna tell you what the problem is. There hasn't been a revival in America in 30 years. That's the problem. The second charismatic renewal happened in the 80s, and it waned in the 2000s. And now the church, instead of focusing on calling on the Lord and manifesting his glory and bringing forth the truths of the kingdom, we seek cultural acceptance. Is we become kingdom irrelevant. Oh, it looks good on Facebook. You get an Instagram post out of it, you know, because you're at the protest, but it's meaningless. Because it's not bare birth in the spirit. It's both out of a social movement that will cause the culture to implode. And that's what you're seeing. You don't see anything being built out of this. You see the culture imploding. I'm not against social movements, but social movements have to come from spiritual revival or they will implode. It's a fact of history. Because Jesus is the foundation. And if you're doing a social movement without the right foundation, you're building it on sand. It's not the goodwill of men. God cares about equality. God cares about justice. But he cares about spiritual reformation first. Jesus never spoke of social reformation, Christian. The reform that he spoke of was first into the church, did he not? He was calling for a revival among his people. He was calling out the religious leaders for their failures. And he was pointing to the social despair. And he was pointing to the religious leaders and saying, this is a direct result of you. This will only change when you do. Right? That's what happened. Read it. That's all the rebuke. His rebukes were never upon the people, always upon the religious leaders. Why were there prostitutes? Do you know why? Because there was a pro- everywhere you, sw- you could swing a cat in the New Testament and find a prostitute. Why is that? Because the religious leaders had created a culture in which men could divorce their wives for no reason. And they had created it as an acceptance. And women were cast out of their homes with no means and no method of support. They couldn't, they could, women were stripped of all of their rights. And who did it? The religious leaders. They had created it. God never created it. You don't find any of that in his word. It's not there. And so the prostitutes were there. Why? Because it's the only way the women can make money. 
The men didn't do business with women. It was looked down upon. Women couldn't testify in court in the Jewish culture. Women had to worship in another location. Again, none of that is biblical. None of it. But the failure of the religious leaders, they created a culture that caused the society to implode. That's what happens. And what was Jesus doing? He knows where the power is. The power's in the church, Christian. The power, we have the spiritual power to transform nations. And what we do is we just, we, we create this distraction culture rather than a kingdom culture. That's what we do. We become culturally accepted, but kingdom irrelevant. And the church is neutered and without power. Oh, we go out and protest, but we leave Jesus at home, right? I'm all in for advocacy, but we advocate first and foremost in the name of Jesus. We advocate secondly based upon the truths of his scriptures. So if you're advocating for something that's not based upon the truths of his scriptures, you're wrong. First of all, if you're advocating for something and you can't say the name of Jesus, then stay home. This, isn't about, this is about Jesus, man. We advocate in his name, through his word, and by the power of his spirit. This is the advocacy that God calls us to do. Do it in my name. There's nothing wrong with advocacy. Nothing wrong with speaking up for the oppressed and the broken, the beaten down, and the inequalities within our culture. But we have to do it kingdom con- in kingdom context. You say the culture won't accept us. That's exactly right. The kingdom won't accept you, or the culture won't accept you. Culture won't accept you. You'd be surprised. The Christian won't even be able to speak. You go to these rallies and get the Christian up there and say, listen, this is all about Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. You know, inequality exists because men's hearts are sinful. You know, injustice exists because men's hearts are sinful. They'd be coming to take your heart right out of your hand. It's true. But that, does, that shouldn't make us be silent. We should, we should still advocate because it's right. Laws do not change sinful hearts. Social movements do not change sinful hearts. We're to speak up as scripture calls us to in the name of Jesus, by his word and by his spirit. Our motivations can never be merely for a social cause. They cannot be. It is because it is right to Jesus in his word. We have to say equality, this is wrong because Jesus says so. That's the church's voice. This isn't wrong because it's unjust to a society. Forget it. Jesus is on everything. We're doing a preschool. I'll tell you guys this before. I mean, most, a lot of nonprofits, they're no longer Christian or not even Jesus-centered. They're faith-based. Faith-based. We're a faith-based nonprofit. Faith-based. Why? Because they don't want to give the money to someone who centers on Jesus. They want to give the money to someone who's faith-based. We're doing a preschool. It's not going to be faith-based. It's going to be Jesus-centered. And every mother that comes in the door, yeah, we're going to tell them. Listen. Your child is going to sing, Mary had a little lamb. Your child is going to say, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if you got an issue with that, this probably isn't the preschool for you. But if, this, if you don't have a problem with this, then this is a preschool that you can use. And it'll not only change your kid, it'll probably change your home. That's our problem. We strip the power out of everything. We take Jesus. That's his name. His name is Jesus. It's not God as you understand him to be. It's a God as he declares himself to be. There's one rock star, and his name is Jesus. That's right. Jesus was not a social reformer. He didn't call for it. He was a spiritual revolutionary, and he called for revival within the church first. This is where he calls for, revival within this people. Because when the people get revived and become awakened to who God is and what his purposes are, then we begin to create movements that actually can last. Then we begin to create things that actually don't cause cultural implosion 
but actually build upon something into a next generation. Right? That's what happened. Women's suffrages in the 1900s, when, they got, when women got the right to vote. I mean, it's insane when you think that women have barely had the right to vote in this country for 100 years, right? I mean, it's like nuts, right? When, I mean, ladies, <laughs> I feel your pain. But like, you, you, you see that like, that was built upon and built upon and built upon. The 70s was another equal, another equal rights movement. But again, it was coming out of spiritual renewal. It was coming out of the, the, the climate within the culture was conducive to that because it was a revival going on. Areas of advocacy... The church, uh, the, um, the first area always is revival among the people. Jesus the calls the people up into the spirit and then sends the church out. It's always unto me, so it's unto the Lord, from the Lord, unto the culture. That's what priestly ministry means. Lord, what do you want to do in our generation? That's the first effort. Lord, what do you want? Not what do I want, not what seems good to me. Lord, what do you want? Get divine instruction. Get divine methodology and then go forth. From us to him, from him to us, from us to the world. That's what it means to minister. Lord, you have a problem with this inequality. I do. How do you want to go about it? I want to go about it like that. I want to go about it like that. I want to go about it like that. Do you want to go about it like that? No, I don't. I want you to do this. That's what it looks like. We're to advocate for the poor. Say this with me. A poor person in the scripture is anyone with a meaningful disadvantage. It's not necessarily economically poor. So we stand up for people that have any kind of meaningful disadvantage in their life. We try to help the people that have meaningful disadvantages. And we all got meaningful disadvantages. That's where we all help each other. We stand up. We advocate for the outcast. Nobody wants these people, right? We used to have a church downtown, right? And we were right near Camilla's house. When we first started this church, we were like in this little dinky thing for a couple of years. And the church that was behind us would always send the homeless people over to us. Every time. Nah. And they say, oh, this isn't your church. That's your church. And I'd say, right this way. <laughs> would you like to sit down front? Go right ahead. And what's crazy is that when we moved, when we started moving over here, these guys would take the train down here, these homeless guys, and they'd be changing their shirts outside, putting jacket. I mean, we never asked them to wear a jacket, you know, look around, you know. <laughs> if you want to wear a jacket, go for it. I mean, we're all in. We never asked that of them. But they followed us even when we were here, you know outcast oh no 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 you're not wanted you no, this isn't your church that's your church i'm like yeah come on in this is your church church of the nations church of all people red yellow black white green pink purple high low smart struggling whatever we're to advocate for the outcast the people nobody wants jesus is a friend of sinners isn't he isn't he friend of the outcasts friend of the unwanteds it's a song that says, the prostitutes love him and the drunks propose a toast. <laughs> and they sing, surely God is with us. Rich Mullins, some of y'all know that song. We advocate for the widow. We advocate, I'm almost done. Bear with me, almost done. Advocate for the widow. And we advocate for repentance among God's people. And we advocate for that. We need to return to the Lord. That's what repentance means. Return to Shuva, come back. Metanoia, change. We come back and we change the way that we see, the way that we feel, the way that we perspective. So we repent from God's people. We call, come back to the Lord. We get his mind. We get his heart. We get his understanding. And we call, we're to advocate for repentance in the world itself. We're to advocate for the equality of all people, ethnicities and gender. We're not all equally intelligent. We all have intelligence, but we're not all equal. Let's just be honest. But we are all equal with value and worth. This is really the issue. All of us have an equality of value and worth in the eyes of our Father. 
And the sons and daughters, when you come to Christ, you even go up a level in value and worth. The bread now becomes for the children. So we have to, what it, what it looks like when we advocate, we don't treat people differently. I mean, we're all different. We all, you know, we're all, we have a lot of differences, but we are all equal. The equality is on value and the equality is on worth. That's man, woman, that's red, that's black, that's yellow, that's green, that's, that's whatever. Ethnicity, there, say this with me. You, ready? I'm gonna, you guys are going to really know this. Say this with me. Racism, Racism. does not exist in the Bible. I want you to say this. It, it exists with sinful people, but the word race doesn't exist in the Bible. Say that. Ra- the word race doesn't exist in the Bible. You know why? Because we're all one race. We're the human race. The word the Bible uses is ethnicity. It's the Greek word ethnos, and what it means is different. That's all it means. To be ethnic is to be different, right? You're, you know, I don't know, whatever. We're all ethnically different. That's, that's it. We all come from different cultural backgrounds, but we're not different races. We're not different breeds of people. We're all, we all come from Adam. All are born of Adam. All of us are. So it's important that as a Christian, you understand that, that we're different, and God esteems us with equality and value and worth. And if you're a son and daughter, you even have a higher value of worth, equality. We're not all equal in every way. Last thing, we treat everyone with value and worth. What's that mean? Respect, dignity, honor, even if you don't agree. You know, we can have respect and dignity even if we don't agree, right? We can, we can still have that. We can still be respectful to each other and not agree. <laughs> the Facebook wars that emerged, we're, all, we're coming out of the, I don't know if you know this, but there was like the social media and the Facebook wars that took place during COVID and during the election where Christians were literally attacking and assaulting one another. <laughs> The Bible says stop biting and devouring each other because if you do that, you yourself are going to be devoured. We can respectfully disagree. We can respectfully disagree. I tell people, man, this is Miami, man. This isn't, Miami's not red or blue. It's purple. And if you want to get red, it's red with the blood of Jesus. We're all different people. We have different perspectives. Doesn't mean we're right. Doesn't mean we're wrong. Somebody's wrong, clearly. Say, well, I think they're wrong. Okay, well, then you have a greater responsibility to the person you perceive as wrong. The Bible says, you who are spiritual, restore. If you're spiritual, then you act in restoration. Then it even goes further. Well, I think they're stupid. I think they're weak-minded and ignorant. And then the Bible says, then bear with the weak-minded. In other words, the ones who think they're right, your responsibility is to be even more serving. That's this kingdom stuff, guys. So anyway, be generous with one another. With, towards the Lord with kindness, opportunity, help, and encouragement. Help. Help each other in every way. Seek to take people higher. When you help other people, you're helping yourself. Advocate for, for the right things. Advocate for kingdom things. And treat everybody with value, worth, and dignity. The Bible says if this happens, Amos 5.4, so we're talking about a river, so virtue is a river. The Bible says this, when we do these things, justice will roll like a river, and righteousness will become an unfailing stream. This is what the Lord wants. This is who we are. Amen? Amen? Amen. We're going to pray. If you're out there and you're in this room and you've never given your life to Jesus, today's your day. The Bible says you have a problem. You say, yeah, I got a lot of them. You're my problem, man. No, you got a problem. You have a sin problem. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the scripture says that because of that sin, we're separated eternally from God. That's the bad news. We're hopeless and helpless, and we cannot save ourselves. 
The Bible says that the good news is, is that Jesus Christ offers forgiveness and life. And then it says that if anyone would believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead, that they would be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the condemnation of guilt and sin? Saved from the, shame, the, guilt, the, the condemnation of the guilt and the shame of sin? And the Bible says that if you receive Christ in your heart, you become brand new. Everybody wants a do-over. We all wish, man, if I had a chance to do it over again, well, wish granted. It's through Christ alone. So we're not gonna, I'm not going to belabor it, but if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus and you're out there and you've never given your life to Jesus, you know you need to. You say, I don't understand it. You don't need to understand it. The Bible says believe in your heart, not with your mind. It, when we put, faith is beyond the understanding, so just put, just put your faith on it. Just, put, just open your heart. We're going to pray. Church is going to pray with us, and if you're here with us, we want to encourage you to do the same. Just open up your heart. Nobody can open your heart but you. Nobody can open your heart but you. It's not intellectual ascension, it's conversion of the heart. This is how we're born again. So I want you to say this. Dear Jesus, come on, give it to him. Say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior, and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe this. And so I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. In all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have a prayer team available if you need prayer. If you need encouragement, today's your day, right? Anybody need encouragement? I want you guys to encourage and exhort one another and just put a little, you know, goodness on them. And let me bless you one more time. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may the Lord give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor in Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.